Hello, it's Monday, March 14th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. We're going to the BAFTAs where one of the big winners was Will Smith playing King Richard. Also, we're talking about the Queen's Diary, which is under review. It's going to mean fewer possible public engagements. Can there be a diplomatic solution to war between Russia and Ukraine? I'm talking to an author who says there can and there will be. But also, would you be one of those people willing to house refugees in your home? And will the £350 a month attract you to the idea a little more? Michael Gove has been unveiling plans for British people to sponsor and house people fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. The Housing Secretary's plans include a payment of £350 a month to those housing refugees, and Mr Gove says tens of thousands of visas will be issued. One of those planning to welcome a Ukrainian refugee into his home is the businessman, investor and Phones for You founder, John Cordwell, who joins me now. Mr Cordwell, presumably you've seen the stuff on TV, you've read about it, it's incredibly moving and powerful and you want to do your bit. Yes, I have to say I was heartbroken on the one hand and so angry with Putin on the other. Mm. But the issue is it's not a matter about heartbroken or anger. We need to do something and... Um, as soon as I was started thinking about these, the plight of these refugees and the amazing job that the Polish and other countries in that area are doing and, and being swamped with the refugees and welcoming them with open arms, the more I felt that we have to do a lot more in Britain. So last week I announced that um, I was going to give one of my apartments up. It's the only spare apartment I've got, actually, but yeah. an apartment up to a refugee family to live there uh, cost free right and uh, this, this was before the sponsorship scheme yeah. and um, but more importantly I encouraged and inspired other wealthy people to do exactly the same thing and lots of them have but do you know the amazing thing as well is we were flooded out with people who said well we're, we're not wealthy and we don't have spare accommodation but I do have one bedroom free that I can house somebody in and I was inundated with those sorts of statements as well, which is incredibly inspiring and heartwarming. And these were people that were, this is before the £350 a yeah. month sponsorship scheme was announced. So this was just genuine, heartfelt charity for these people who so desperately need our help. What have you made of the government's response to the refugee crisis? Because this is going to be, without doubt, isn't it, the worst, the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War? Yes, I'm afraid it is, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just so dreadful. We, it, it leaves me speechless to know how to articulate the way I feel about it all. But yes, it is. And um, the government's, well, the, we know they were very slow off the blocks and they were very bureaucratic, they weren't organised, and to be honest, I think that was a shameful start to the process. But it's not about what you've done wrong in the past, it's about what you do right in the future, and I think they're now hopefully putting that right at a rapid rate of knots. We need to allow these refugees, the ones that want to come to Britain, and they may have very specific reasons for wanting to come to Britain. For instance, English might be their second language and they may not be able to speak Polish. So they may have a real reason that they want to come to Britain. Apart from the fact, of course, we are a great country. Um, and we need to make it helpful and easy for them and welcome them with open arms. And of course, we need to do some uh, checks and make sure that we've got some 
paperwork in place so that we know what's going on. But it needs to be done effectively and efficiently, and that's what I'm hoping the government are going to do this week to bring these people in. Now, regarding the £350 scheme, I think it's a good contribution to it. It worries me a little bit because it's going to encourage lots of people to take refugees in. Some people may be doing it for the money, um, but whether they are or not, it's not an easy thing integrating another family with a different culture into your own home when you've only got a smallish uh, living accommodation. So I I think it's really heartening that people want to do this. But if I'd have been the government, I would have tried to encourage people like me, which is what I'm doing now, trying to encourage people like me, to take these families into proper self-contained living accommodation. And the other point in that, there's people, my my whole thought on this is that I can provide them with lovely accommodation in in a nice environment, but I can possibly also help them find a career and uh, to make a new life for themselves in case the Ukraine doesn't come. Well, it's not going to come back anytime soon anyway. No, it so doesn't much feel like it, does but, it? Uh, yeah. No, but uh, so my objective will be to help them find a new life and to get to get at work, to get a job and uh, have that dignity and self-respect and not just be a charity case, which, of course, at first it'll, it will be that for all of these people, but then hopefully they can find a pro- proper life for themselves with a, a living and, uh, and enjoy a, a new country. You said uh, it'll be great for them, you do whatever you can for them, but you said you think the experience will be quite humbling and enriching for you in helping a family in this way. Well, you know, I'm humbled and enriched all the time, and this will be the case. I mean, the the charity that I founded, Cordwell Children, we've helped 65 to 70,000 children already in that charity. And that is immensely humbling because we've got children with all sorts of horrible illnesses that are so enthusiastic and so positive about life with so little. And I think this is going to be the same in a lot of cases with these refugees because they've been torn apart. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine when your whole life disappears from in front of you, where your country is invaded, your home is destroyed, you may have even lost a family member. Uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine the strife of those people. I'm with you 100%. Uh, best of luck with it, um, Mr Caldwell, and perhaps we can talk to you again when the family arrive and you've set them up in home. It'll be good to talk to you again. Yeah, sure. That's uh, the businessman John Caldwell, investor, and of course he's the founder of Phones For You. Diplomatic efforts to bring the war in Ukraine to an end have stepped up, with both Russian and Ukrainian negotiators giving positive assessments after the weekend's talks. David Patrikarakos, author of War in 140 Characters, says that one potential way to resolve the conflict could be to look back at how JFK handled the Cuban Missile Crisis way back in in 1962. And David joins me now. David, how did President Kennedy handle the Cuban Missile Crisis? I know he he faced down Khrushchev, did he not? He did. I mean, look, the the point about Kennedy, we have to understand that, you know, it was a different situation. That was things really possibly going, you know, close to nuclear nuclear war. Um, And if you look at, if you listen to the Kennedy tapes, the Cuban Missile Crisis tapes, as I have, and, you know, if you remember back then, or remember it was before I was born, but you know, the Soviets' missiles could not reach the United States. That's why they wanted to put them in Cuba. Yeah. So what, you, what would have happened is that um, if, um, if Kennedy had nuked Russia, Russia would have nuked um, 
well, Britain and Europe, his allies. And if you listen to the tapes, the generals are going, you know, Mr. President, we need to act, we need to strike. And he says, well, if they do ask, you know, strike against us, they'll strike Europe. And they basically, in a roundabout way, say, well, that doesn't matter. And he pulls them back from the brink. So I think while those circumstances are not analogous, the principle of, like, everybody's very, very angry, everyone's very, very emotional, and it's completely understandable with the return of war to Europe, it is time to keep a cool head and to be practical because that will save lives. And you say, you make the point, David, in your very fine piece in the paper, that he had to swallow his own repugnance in a way to do a deal with the devil, which was Khrushchev. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's very, you know, that any way that this, this situation will be resolved, uh, it looks like you'll have to do a deal with, with, with the modern day devil who is Vladimir Putin. It's unlikely, I mean, unless he's, he's assassinated or he's overthrown in the palace coup, and we can but hope, uh, then you're going to have to deal with him. And he's a repugnant man, a man who's guilty of genocide in Syria, in Chechnya, and now in Ukraine. But unfortunately, if you want to save more lives, he's someone that you're probably going to have to deal with. And you make the point, David, that the invasion is staggering from one calamity to the next. Uh, bombing maternity hospitals, shelling civilians, fleeing along so-called humanitarian corridors. Nevertheless, the Ukrainians have to talk to him. But would it be beyond you, the Ukrainians, David? Will it be? Will perhaps a third party in the end be able to broker the peace between the two sides? Look, um, I'm not sure it'll be beyond the Ukrainians. I think they'll need a mediating party. Right. But ultimately, like, who else is going to speak? Yeah. Um, it's between Russia and Ukraine, and obviously there'll be mediation, but it will have to be decided between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Um, and, you know, as I, as I say, it's, um, it's very much about accepting the reality on both sides. This is what I think the the key, the, the thesis, the, the key to any piece has to be, which is we have to accept the realities on the ground, which are unpleasant, um, but there they are. And by that, I mean the Ukrainians have to accept that Crimea and eastern Ukraine are gone. I was there in, you know, 2014 in the occupied cities. You know, those places are gone. And, like, you know, it's been almost eight years now. If you're a, if you're a five-year-old child in 2014 in those areas, you're now, you know, you're now 13 years old. Yeah. You have not grown up in Ukraine. Frankly, Ukraine doesn't want those places anymore. And um, for its part, the Russians have to accept this idea that, you know, that, that, that Ukraine is, is, is some kind of part of Russia, that it's a, that Ukraine just confused Russians. That's over. That's been comprehensively disproved. So they're going to have to accept that beyond Crimea and Eastern Eastern Ukraine or the Donbass, Ukraine is a sovereign nation that palpably does not want to be a part of Russia. But the second thing they're going to have to accept is that, you know, Ukraine is now a de facto European state. It is, you know, there is every minute of every day right now, military equipment, logistical supplies and cash flowing into Ukraine from Europe and indeed the broader West. Uh, you know, Ukrainians now have visa-free travel across the, the EU. And that's the reality now that the Russians are going to have to accept. Now, you know, let's just say the Russians say that they're very worried about Ukraine joining NATO. Well, Ukraine's not going to join NATO. That'll be up there. And let's be honest, NATO does not want Ukraine. But Ukraine um, is probably going to join the EU now. Yeah. This is very much about what is the realities on the ground. Ukrainians, as, as hard as it is to accept, are going to have to accept the Crimea and the Donbass are gone. And Putin, as hard as it is to him to accept, I don't really care that it's hard for him to accept. Now to accept the realities from their point of view. Ukraine is an independent, sovereign state that does not want to be a part of Russia and is now well on the way to European integration, which, by the way, his own stupidity and violence has helped facilitate. Is it, in your view, David, going to be enough for Vladimir 
Putin to be able to say to the Russian people, that however many thousand soldiers, Russian soldiers will die, he'll lie about that anyway, that he's ending up with what he'd already got and he hasn't achieved any more uh, geographical gains. Is that going to be enough? You're absolutely right. Look, I can look. I was one of these people in the beginning, before he invaded, that said, I don't believe Putin's going to invade because it would be mad. Yeah. I was wrong, but for all the right reasons. Yeah. In the sense that I didn't think it would be successful. And I said, look, I wrote a piece and I said, look, this was before the invasion. I said, right now, those troops are massed on the border. You know, he wants to strut around looking like the head of a superpower, which Russia, by the way, is not. He's got everything. You know, Joe Biden is begging for meetings with him. He said he can call me anytime. French President Macron is, is summoned to the Kremlin and made to sit at the other end of that long table like a supplicant. He has all the benefits, all the benefits of, of you know, looking tough without firing a single shot. I said, if he goes in, he's going to lose all the leverage and it's going to be a disaster. And so it was. So you're dealing with a man that, um, that has made a colossal blunder and, um, you know, he's driven not by geostrategic sense, but by hubris and, and, and slight madness. So, yes, he's made everything worse for himself. I'd be very surprised if Putin is around in, in a couple of years because, you know, he's pauperizing the elite. They're not going to be happy. No, that's true. Uh, fascinating, David. Really interesting. That's um, David Patrick Karakos, who is the author of War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. And a great piece in the paper, too, I may say. So the Queen's diary is under review and she is unlikely to undertake some major public engagements such as investitures, although I don't think she's done one of those for quite some time. Buckingham Palace sources say the monarch, who is of course 95, is healthy and is as committed to her duties of state as ever. But nevertheless, there is a contraction in the amount of public engagements she's undertaking. Joining me now is Penny Juno, the Royal Biographer. Penny, um, a lot of um, speculation as to whether she will even herself be at the service memorial service for Prince Philip at Westminster Abbey. It's not the easiest place for somebody who's having mobility issues to negotiate. Yes, I would think it's there's a real question mark over whether she'll attend that. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, you know, we must not forget she is 95 years old, about to be 96. She she can't move as well as she used to. Um, And she's, you know, she admitted that and we we saw her um, talking to Trudeau, I think, um, saying she couldn't Mm. move as well as she couldn't move anymore. Um, So the the prospect of, you know, walking down the aisle at at Westminster Abbey, I think would be just out of the question. I mean, she could possibly be put into a wheelchair. Um, But I don't think she wants to do that, does she? I don't think she wants to do that. It may come to that, but but may it, you know, I, I, I don't think it's the end of the world if she's not at the memorial service. She's always fantastic on video links. We see how vibrant she is. You know, she's well, but she is old. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, of course, we've got the events coming up for her Platinum Jubilee Penny in June, two or three days, three or four days, perhaps, of events, uh, that, including an, an, a church service, of course, and um, there will be, we would assume, that she would normally be on the balcony at Buckingham Palace because there'll be a lot of people who want to see her. But I wonder if any of that now is going to happen. Well, I mean, of course, you know, we must wonder whether it will happen. Um, I, my guess would be that those events that she can get to where she can be sort of put in place easily um, would go ahead. 
and those where she can't, where she has to climb steps or or walk a long distance, I, I'd have thought maybe we won't see her. Mm. But clearly for the Jubilee, you know, that's something that she, I mean, it's, it's such a special occasion and such yeah. an extraordinary achievement that um, I would have thought she will, will do everything in her power to be there in, in person. Yeah. Thanks to the wonders of technology, you know, we almost don't need her there in person because if there's a screen and uh, she is beamed into into that church, um, we've or, or that event, we've got her. You know, she's she's there talking. Yeah. She And, of course, she's not at the Commonwealth Day service today uh, and once some of the papers are reporting, Penny, that she won't be doing investitures anymore. I don't think she's done investitures for a very long time, has she? Because that involves standing up for hours on uh, end. Uh, absolutely. I don't think she's done full ones. No, not for, not for some years. Um, I think she's done limited investitures. But, but again, yes, I mean, it, it does, it involves standing for a very, very long time. And, you know, shaking everybody's hand, saying the right words to everybody. They're quite tiring. I mean, they must be exhausting. Physically, I just think she's not up to that anymore. Yeah, and she's got good doctors advising her, and she's a sen- and she's sensible, isn't she, Penny? Let's let's be honest. She's she's a she's a wise woman, and she's going to take advice that um, if it's too much, not to do it. I think that's right. That's right. And I think that you know that she will be limited and sort of regulated by her own body. And if she physically finds it difficult to walk and finds it tiring to stand for long periods, then she'll stop doing it. But that doesn't mean we're losing her as queen. She is still there. She is still, um, she's got all her marbles. She has got the enthusiasm that she had when she was, you know, in her 20s. And she's got great stand-ins who who can deputize for her. Mm. She's got three of her children and she's got her grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. And I know one of, and I know one. Some things don't change, Penny. She's still doing her weekly audience with her prime minister, either on Zoom or in person. And she, if he can do it in person, he goes to Windsor Castle. And he, I know for a fact, doesn't like to miss it because he says it's one thing that doesn't leak. And of course, she's she's a very wise counsel at a very very difficult time in the world. Absolutely. I mean, you know, other prime ministers have said that as well, that she's she's the one person they can talk to, particularly when things are going wrong politically or in the world. Um, and she's a she's an absolute fountain of, of good advice because she's seen so many things before. Yeah. When, when you think her first prime minister as the young Queen Penny was Winston Churchill. Amazing, isn't it? And now here she is. She's got Boris Johnson. Amazing. Extraordinary. Penny... Oh, Who wasn't yeah, even born. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> when, when she was, amazing. I know. Yeah, she is remarkable. Is. Um, Penny, it's great to talk to you. That's Penny Juno, the royal biographer, talking about Her Majesty the Queen, age 95, nearly 96, um, who we'll probably see a bit more on Zoom if we don't see her in the flesh. Great to talk to you, Penny. Thanks for coming on. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood's here to give me my latest education in the world of sport, which of course you know I know absolutely nothing about, but I do know we weren't very good at Twickenham on Saturday. And I knew there was a game because I got a very good text. I rang a mate and he said, do you know nothing, Piers? I'm at the twi- I'm at the rugby. <laughs> I called him for a gossip. 
and, and it was bad timing. It was bad timing because we were getting hammered as well at the time. Well, it wasn't the only bad timing on Saturday right. because there was another piece of bad timing, which was the red card in the first minute of the game for England, which meant oh. that uh, which meant that they were down to fourteen men against who got, Ireland who for the got rest sent of the game. For that? So Charlie Yule's with a high tackle right. uh, in the very first minute of the game, pretty much. I didn't uh, know players got sent off in rugby very Absolutely, often. yeah. If you endanger the opponent, right. which he did, because he went in high to tackle the guy with the ball, and yeah. they clashed heads because you know and right. it was the England man's fault because he went in so high. So it was an absolute. 100% uh, although the crowd were obviously booing and were appalled by the decision mm. uh, because it ruined the game you know from the very yeah, first minute yeah. the game was ruined there was we, no way they'd lost already presumably absolutely I mean England were on the back foot anyway in this game they mm. were they were underdogs as Eddie Jones uh, kept reminding us in the build up to the game uh, so to go down to 14 men against 15 for the rest mm. of the game in the very first minute meant that there was no way they were going to win it now the the narrative after the game was oh didn't England do well because although it finished 15-32 they were in the game in terms of keeping the score just remind people who we lost to sorry to Ireland, to Ireland. Um, and we were in the game England were in the game uh, you know until sort of 10 minutes ago where Ireland pulled away so a lot of the narrative afterwards well didn't England do well but you know the bottom line is England have lost again uh, yeah. a game again at Twickenham you know and and uh, that and it, is unacceptable and, and an international standard player shouldn't be sent off in the first minute well exactly so that's his fault that's yeah. no one else's fault that's no. not the referee's fault yeah. that is the England team's yeah. fault so yeah. that comes down to them so that comes down to well the preparation or what they're doing on the training pitch so yeah, now look, anyone could have a rush of blood and anyone can make a mistake. But England, you know, at the end of the day, England lost that game. Mm. They they now will go to France at the weekend. There's a very good chance they'll lose that game. They may prove me wrong and they may go and win in Paris, but I would be amazed. Yeah. So they will finish this Six Nations probably in fifth or fourth place. Oh um, a bit, a bit which, like last time. Which is last time. Last year they finished fifth. You know, and this is Eddie Jones building a side ahead of the next year's World Cup and it doesn't feel like we're building anything. It feels like we're going backwards. Time for a new manager. Well, but they won't. They won't. They will not get rid of Eddie Jones before the World Cup. They've very much uh, got all their eggs in the Eddie Jones basket right through until the World right. Cup. So because he got to the World Cup final last time round, you know, they think he's the man to do it. But, you know, there's no signs of progress this time round. In fact, we're sort of stagnating. So, um, yeah, a very disappointing day. And it was just annoyed me how the, uh, as I say, the narrative was, oh, didn't England do well? Um, but but they didn't. You know, they, yes, some players performed heroically. Some players put a lot of effort in. But the bottom line is the scoreline. Not how well, didn't some players try hard? The bottom line is the scoreline and we yeah, lost yeah, again. Yeah, very much. Now, talking of losing, Everton lost again. Now, that's that nice man Frank Lampard's team, isn't it? Yeah, that nice man Frank Lampard is deep in the doo-doo mm. because this is, a, that was a terrible result for them yesterday to lose at home uh, to Wolves. Um, and they are now uh, level at the bottom with Watford uh, in terms of points, but they're just Mm. above the relegation zone in terms of uh, goal difference. But, you know, this is Everton, you know, They've been mainstays in the top flight for years and years. You know, they, they've, they've. I think they've had something like they're, they're the longest-serving top-flight team apart from Arsenal. Are so really? I think it's the fifties <clears throat> was the last time they were down. Gosh. Um, so, you know, the thought of them going down is is just you know unheard of. Mm. But they are absolutely flirting with the possibility of getting relegated now because they've got a horror run of fixtures coming up. Um, they cannot seem to to buy a goal at the moment. Uh, since Lampard's been there, they've lost five out of six. So he's oh, not exactly dear. had the new manager bounce no. that you're get from a new manager so it is looking pretty grim and it's sort of like oh they're too good to go sack him already 
They may do. You know, they may do. If they keep, if they don't pick up a win, you know, they may they may think that they've got to move on. They've got to try someone else because they can't just sit by no. and watch the team get relegated because of the, the huge financial implications. And obviously, Everton have already been hit financially mm. by the fact that Usmanov, their Russian backer, right. has been made to walk away because he's been sanctioned by oh, the government. Right. So that's lost them a huge chunk of money because mm. he was uh, sponsoring the stadium, for example, their new stadium they're having built. Yeah. Um, so that's a finances they won't have then if they go down with players on Premier League wages in the Championship that's going to cost them money uh, they obviously get parachute payments this thing that softens the blow when you go down which I've always found slightly baffling mm. but um, but it, it's you know it's a real mess and it could be a, a real problem for Everton if they were to drop out of the league fascinating and Chelsea uh, they won just uh, Tuchel Tuchel He's yep. staying, but he's the te- so he's like the he's a manager interim manager. No, no, he's the full time manager. Oh right, he's the full time manager. That's Man okay. U. We've got an interim manager. Oh, right. I was getting mixed. Up. Uh, yeah. They have a German interim manager, but Chelsea have a ah. full time manager, Thomas Tuchel, who obviously led them to the Champions League uh, success last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's he's at the club, and you know he there, there's been rumour that he might walk away because, because of, of the, Abramovich. Because of the re- Abramovich sanctions, meaning Chelsea mm. can't extend contracts of current players, can't buy new players, no. um, etc. etc. They you know obviously they can't even sell more tickets than they uh, than yeah. they haven't previously they, they been sold. Did quite well to win considering all the um, uncertainty well, in the be, dressing room exactly and th- th- to be fair since since the sanctions have been imp- uh, implemented they've won two games they beat Norwich on the Thursday night and then they won yesterday they, and it took them till the 88th minute to win yesterday a great goal by Kai Havertz but all the attention as you say was off mm. the pitch who did you they know, beat yesterday uh, Newcastle sorry right. uh, Newcastle 1-0 in the 88th minute mm. the, even to little distractions like they're still wearing the three uh, sponsorship uh, deal on the shirt because they can't afford to have the three taken off because well not they can't afford it but they're not allowed to spend money mm. on anything that is involved in you know looking after the club so they can't take the three off the kit they can't it's just bizarre so they had programs printed yesterday that couldn't be sold for example because they're not allowed to make any money now they're in talks with um, with the government about easing some of these legislation yes. so that the club doesn't go to the wall and so they can still play pay their players but also all the other staff who work for Chelsea Football Club mm. so I don't think the government are keen to see them go to the wall so it may be that there's a lot of um, hyperbole over the weekend about you know we may go to the wall if we don't I think the government will stop that happening mm. um, but they're obviously looking at the moment for the new owner to come in. Now, they've got until the end of this week for the bids to be uh, sort of uh, collected and everyone to come forward who wants to bid for the club. Yeah. And then the government, in conjunction with the Premier League and this American finance group that Abramovich put in charge, mm-hmm. will then decide who the appropriate new owner might be. Amazing story, isn't but it? But who knows who that appropriate owner might be? How much money yeah. they've got, You know, whether they're minded to throw and, money at the club can, or not. Can they carry on playing in the European Championship? Yes, they can they carry can. on playing in the in the Champions League, yeah, which they've got a fixture this week. But they can't sell any tickets for it? They can't sell... T- well, it's, they probably can because they will have already sold tickets, ah. so pre-existing sales will be right. okay. Yeah. So they've got things like the FA Cup game against Middlesbrough coming up where they haven't sold tickets, where they have to so- decide whether they can... Or give them away. They could give them away, exactly. Um, so there's all these things that need to be sorted out. So it's a huge mess, but hopefully... By the end of this week, we might have a bit more clarity over who the new owners are, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. bet on it. I can be, you can be pretty certain politically, the government will not want to see a club like Chelsea go to the wall. No, that would be a bad look, and Very I think they, and yeah, because people losing their jobs, you know, yeah. the or not so much the players who are obviously multi-millionaires, yeah. but the the people who work behind the scenes, etc. Yeah, the so, ground staff yeah. and the program sellers. Yeah, and, and it, would, it would just be a bad look, yeah. and um, so they they they're going to pretty much make sure that's not going to happen. Very interesting, Matt, and you'll keep us abreast of what's happening. 
happening there. That's um, Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood with all the latest. So the winners of the BAFTAs have been announced. It was a glitzy, glamorous ceremony, as you'd expect. And of course, it was the first time it was done in person in two years because of COVID. The show was hosted by Rebel Wilson and was attended by, amongst others, Benedict Cumberbatch and Lady Gaga. Emma Powell is the Daily Mail showbiz correspondent and she was there too and joins me now. Emma, why didn't Lady Gaga win? I thought she was terrific in that film. I know. I think I think everybody was sort of hoping that that she'd get the win. I mean, she had front row seats as well, but um, she lost out. Uh, it was a great film, and she, it was a great role that she played in House of Gucci. But the best actress award went to Joanna Scanlon, which um, I think some people were surprised at, but a well a well deserved win, I think, for her. I think she was just equally as shocked as everyone else when she got up on stage to give her acceptance speech. I know, it's probably showing my ignorance. I'd never heard of her. She was Terry Coverley in um, the BBC satire, The Thick of It. So oh, I think she's almost she having is, yeah. a bit... Yeah, it's almost, so it's almost a bit of a Olivia Coleman sort of moment for yes. her. You know, she's come from sort of like a British TV show and is now sort of making waves in the film industry. And maybe this is her sort of break in film now. Who knows? And and James Bond, of course, that was up for five gongs, Emma, just got the one. Yeah, I think, I mean, they won editing. Um, so it was a bit disappointing as well, considering last night Shirley Bassey performed as part of like the 60th anniversary of Bond. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it would have been quite nice to see No Time to Die being um, Daniel Craig's final film as well, sort of win a, a few more than that, especially at a British awards event. But, yeah, alas, they only won one on the night. I think the film was too long, Emma. I, I, there was a few of us discussing this last night. I think a lot of a lot of the problems people had with a lot of the films that were up is that they were perhaps slightly too long, and actually some yeah. could be done with being cut down a little bit. And and of course, the best film was this Western movie, which wasn't really a Western at all. The Power of the Dog. That film really has divided opinion, hasn't it, Emma? Yeah. Um, as well, I mean, divided opinion as well in terms of Benedict Cumberbatch and should he be playing the character he's playing, the whole debate of if you're a certain person, should you be playing this person and that whole debate. But, I mean, it, it's done really well. It got best film. Jane Campion won best director. She wasn't actually there on the night. She was in L.A. the same night as the Critics' Choice Awards, so the celebs had to sort of split themselves between here and across the pond in in LA. Oh, that's bad yes, planning. Yes, isn't same it? night. So I mean Lane Zaga, for example, there she was at the Bafters and then sort of rushed off next minute she was at the Savoy Hotel, new outfit, ready for the screening of Critics Choice Awards. So yeah, busy night for a film star. Right. Yeah, exactly. And of course, Will Smith, that, that was a popular win, wasn't it? Leading actor gong for his role in King Richard. He played the part of the dad of the tennis stars, Venus and Serena. Yeah, and then that was his... I mean, it's a shame he wasn't actually there on the night. Yeah. Because it was his first BAFTA nomination, and he's won. So it would have been nice for him to be there. But again, he was over at the Critics' Choice Awards in LA, picking up awards. So, um, yeah, he, he didn't get that one. And, uh, but I think the surprise there as well, I think a lot of people did think Best Actor would go to Benedict for um, The Power of the Dog, but got picked to the post by Will Smith. Yeah, and what about the um, Kenneth Branagh film? That didn't do much at all. I thought that was gonna thought that might win stuff. Judy Dench, she's always she's always hovering around the awards, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, she wasn't actually there last night. Um, there wasn't a, a lot of people from Belfast. You had um, Kenneth Branagh was there, and he got up um, to accept outstanding British film. Um, but they didn't. They didn't really have a big awards hall last night for Belfast at all, which is a shame. Jude Hill wasn't even nominated. The little boy, the eleven-year-old who um, sort of is based on Kenneth Branagh. 
Um, yeah, but I, I think um, Kieran Hines was there, but yeah, he didn't win. So it was a bit of a, a disappointing night for them. I think it was a, a bit of a disappointing night for Brits in general, really. Emma, was it good to have it back in person again after COVID uh, knocked it out the last two years? Yes, I mean, it's not. It's never going to be the same over Zoom. So great to be back at the Royal Albert Hall. I think everyone had a great night. No social distancing, no mask wearing from everyone. So it was, it was a great night. It felt like normal life again. Great to see. And it was fa- fascinating reading too. That's Emma Powell, who's Daily Mail showbiz correspondent, who was at the BAFTAs. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.